I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Investors bracing for some Wednesday whiplash as stocks look to snap a five-session losing streak. Futures right now, they're higher. Mixed signals from the Bank of England amid reports it plans to extend its emergency bond buying past Friday's deadline. We have reaction from London coming up ahead. Tech under pressure as the Nasdaq falls into its second bear market of the year. We break down the sector's wall of worry and look at what's ahead. Plus, President Biden coming to terms with a possible U.S. recession, joining a chorus of other world leaders. And then later on, why Twitter could be bringing its content moderation policies in line with Elon Musk's vision for that platform's future. It is Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today. So let's kick off your Wednesday morning. It's hump day with a check on U.S. equity futures. They're higher. They're bid. You can see here the Dow is implied higher by just about 100 points. The S&P higher by 15 and the Nasdaq higher by 70. It may not seem like a lot, but it is green. We haven't seen a lot of it as of late. The major averages are coming off a mostly weaker session that saw the Nasdaq hit its lowest level since July of 2020. Now more than, by the way, 35 percent below its all time highs that we saw last fall. The S&P hitting its lowest level since November of 2020. The S&P, the Nasdaq and the Nasdaq 100 all coming off their fifth down sessions in a row. Checking in on the bond market right now, yields, they are still on the move and inching towards that 4% level for the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury. But we're seeing a little bit of a pullback today in rates. The 10-year note yield just a hair below 3.93%. The two-year note yield 4.29%. And the 30-year long bond just around 3.92%. The 30-year, by the way, hitting its highest level since 2014. Within the energy complex, oil prices, you can see now, WTI, by the way, coming off back-to-back losing sessions. We are still now down two-tenths of 1%, $89.19 for U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI crude. World benchmark Ice Brent crude futures just about flat on the session, $94.31. And within crypto, we are seeing Bitcoin and Ether, yes, marginally marginally moving here, just about fractions of the upside for Bitcoin prices, 19,145, so still below that 20,000 level, although we've kind of been around 5, 7% of that point above or below for quite some time. Ethereum, $1,298.68, up about one and one third percent. Now around the world, we saw a mixed session in Asia, key developments overnight, the Bank of Korea, raising interest rates by half a percent, 50 basis points, to a 10-year high of 3%. And in Japan, the yen is now trading at its lowest level in 24 years against the greenback. The U.S. dollar is still showing some strength there. Now trading, again, 146 yen. That's what it takes to buy a U.S. dollar right now. Within Europe, let's spin that globe around. The trading just getting kind of underway and really going right now on that continent. You've got Gains right now, fractionally speaking, for the CAC in France, the FTSE 100 in the U.K., and the German DAX, all up roughly one quarter of 1%. Got some key news out of that region in just a moment coming up. But first, let's get to some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Silvana, good morning. Hi, Dom. Good Wednesday morning. Well, listen to this. Twitter is reportedly reviewing its policies 
around permanently banning users. And according to the Financial Times, could be bringing its content moderation more in line with Elon Musk's vision for the platform. The report says Twitter has been exploring if there are other tools that could replace the ban, but as any policy change would unlikely bring former President Trump back to the platform since Twitter is not considering reversing plans issued for breaching policies against inciting violence. Intel is reportedly planning to fire thousands of workers by the end of this month. According to Bloomberg, layoffs will coincide with the company's scheduled earnings release. Intel has around 121,000 employees worldwide. Its stock is down more than 50 percent over the past 12 months. And Amazon workers at a warehouse in Southern California have filed a petition to form a union with the Nation Labor Relations Board. The warehouse staff located in Moreno Valley are looking to align themselves with the Amazon Labor Union. That's the same group that claimed victory at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, New York. Should it pass, this will be the, this will be Amazon's first California unionized warehouse, Dom. Silvana Hanau with the headlines. Thank you very much. You to a developing story this morning and the new report from the Bank of England is possibly exploring extending possibly its emergency bond buying program beyond this Friday's deadline. Our Jumana Bersetchi joins us now from London with the latest here. Jumana, this report comes just one day after the bank's governor said on the record that the bank has no intention of extending the program so why all the mixed signals? You know, that is a question that everyone in the market is asking themselves today, Dom. And I think it is worth reminding viewers that when the Bank of England did introduce this program on September the 28th, it was strictly temporary in nature and was supposed to end on October 14th. And indeed, the Bank of England governor, Andrew Bailey, did warn the UK pension fund community yesterday that they have three days left to rebalance their positions, after which the Bank of England will be ending their emergency guild buying program. So on the back of that, we are seeing the pounds sort of not knowing what to do because the Financial Times also put out a report shortly afterwards saying that the central bank's emergency bond buying program could actually be extended with officials monitoring the sector. Now, the Bank of England have declined to comment on that FT report, but at least the reaction in the pound tells you some people are hoping that the bond buying program will indeed be extended. And the reaction in guilds tells you a similar story because initially we opened up much weaker, about five to seven basis points higher in yield terms. Then we rallied back to flat. Right now we're coming off again. The 10-year yield is about 4.5 percentage points. We're actually getting very close to levels we were at just before the bank introduced the bond buying program. So almost we've, we've gone full circle just in the last 10 days. But speaking at an IAF event in Washington, Bailey said the Bank of England was fulfilling its financial stability mandate through the emergency intervention, but stressed that any such measures must be temporary. My message to the funds involved and all the firms involved in managing those funds, you've got three days left now. You've got to get this done. Um, because, again, part of the essence, I think, of a financial stability intervention is that it is clearly right. temporary. And so there, that is the Bank of England governor uh, reminding everybody that these measures are supposed to be temporary. And the Bank of England have actually responded to this FD article uh, and is being reported by other news services that they do intend to end the temporary bond buying program this Friday. So we've been talking about the possibility of a cliff edge for the gilt market. That cliff edge is still very much there, Dom. 
All right, end of the week for sure, watching everything on Friday. Giovanna Bersetti in London, thank you very much. Let's talk more about the messaging from the Bank of England as well as the broader global markets with Sven Henrich. He's the founder and lead market strategist at Northman Traders. Sven, you just heard Jumana's report here. Uh, she mentioned that the Bank of England is implying that these emergency measures are temporary. But, you know, we had some of these measures put into place here in the U.S. and across the world back in 2009, 10, 11, and they became kind of permanent. So what exactly is the market read on whether or not volatility is going to cause the Bank of England to keep its intervention program longer than expected? Hi, Dom. Good to be with you. Well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Look, we're looking at the symptoms of a larger disease, which is financial instability globally coming about by an incredible velocity in rate hikes across the board, especially driven by the Fed. We, look, we came out of a system where we've just doubled debt to GDP in the United States in since 2008, yet we now find the 10-year yield at the levels of 2008. And the velocity of that move is simply not sustainable without breaking something. We went from free money to now extreme restrictive policy. And we see what happens in England. It's causing problems, not only because of yields, but because of the strength of the dollar. And so the system is actually fairly fragile. And so I think the, 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 the message here is that central bankers are desperately trying to fight for credibility on the inflation front, but at the same time are risking that something larger breaks. And so that is kind of the, the biggest risk out here, that central banks are moving so fast, especially the Fed, that they're not waiting to see what the actual impacts on the economy are, and then they're over-tightening. So going from over-loosening to over-tightening, and then at, before you know it, the disease inflation is cured, but the patient is dead and you end up with a larger, deeper recession. I mean, that that disfend, that that's that's harsh, though, right, that the patient hopefully isn't going to die because that implies the market and the economy are doomed for some kind of really bad, fiery pit uh, 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 of inflationary driven kind of volatility. I, I, I wonder, though, if you're looking at this, we know over the long term things have to be fixed and work themselves out. But these are at least downturns are being viewed as opportunities for, for some folks. Is there more downside left in your, mar- in your mind for the U.S. market? And if so, how much before eventually we, we have to assume things recover? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on this. I mean, inflation to me is a temporary issue. The question is how it's going to be solved in terms of the, the tightening aspect. Technically, actually, ironically, as markets have been under tremendous stress here, Technically, I see this all positive here. I mean, what is required, and it's been the same issue, we need to see some relief in the data to drive down expectations. Whereas oversold structurally, as we've been at the 2020 bottom or 2019 bottom, sentiment is bad as it bad as during the financial crisis, and so is positioning. <clears throat> so ironically, given all this, we're still holding in there. I do see some more downside risk if we don't get any relief on CPI or PPI this week, uh, then I can look at 34.97 to 35.40 in terms of a general next level support level. But if you do get relief, i.e. on the 10-year yield and the dollar, based on where we're set up with positive divergences, we can have a massive melt-up. I hate to be so binary about this, but this is kind of the cliff edge we're at at the moment. The market is thirsting for relief. And if he gets that relief, then things can look bright very quickly. So, But that's the risk, right? Because if you don't get that relief, then things can still get tougher here in the near term. 
And the volatility continues for sure. Sven Henrich at Northman Trader, thank you very much, sir. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Tom. Take care. When we come back on the show, preparations underway as President China, China's President Xi Jinping, gets set to lay out a five-year roadmap for his country. We're going to be live in Beijing with what investors can expect from that big meeting coming up this weekend. Plus, President Biden coming to terms with a possible U.S. recession. We have his full comments on that coming up ahead. And then later on, will Facebook's $1,500 virtual reality headset be an industry game changer? Facebook hardware. Got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Turning now towards China, preparations are underway in Beijing as Xi Jinping gets set to lay out his five-year roadmap for that country. Our Eunice Yoon joins us now live from China to tell us more about what we can expect from this very big and very important People's Congress meeting. It's a very important event, uh, Dom. That's one of the reasons why authorities here have said that security in the Chinese capital is iron fist tight ahead of the leadership reshuffle that's going to occur this weekend. Uh, They say that over one million alleged criminals have been detained and that COVID, uh, zero COVID protocols have been tightened even further. Now, it's widely expected that President Xi Jinping is going to get an unprecedented third five-year term. And for investors, uh, a lot of people are watching what's going to happen at the end of this Congress, which is in about one week. Um, And uh, that's because we'll get a better sense as to who is going to be making up the rest of the leadership positions. And that will give us a sense as to uh, just how powerful uh, President Xi's leadership will be for this next five years. Now, the indications are that President Xi is going to maintain a very strong degree of influence over all policies from national security to the economy, as well as foreign affairs. There's been a lot of discussion that President Xi is going to end up getting a higher, more powerful title, and that um, other um, um, measures uh, are going to be um, instituted in the uh, Constitution, such as enshrining Xi Jinping thought into, um, into it as a guiding principle. So all of that, of course, um, Dom, really indicates that President Xi uh, will, and his flagship programs are just going to continue, including zero COVID. Uh, OK, so, so l- can we stay on that, that zero COVID sense of things? Because, you, Eunice, is there any sense of a public reaction to what's happening now with the latest kind of iteration of China's zero COVID policy? We've seen some news reports and uh, and some social media mentions of perhaps a little bit of civil unrest that's developing right now uh, among the citizens there. Is it becoming more frustrating as it did in the later stages of COVID here in the U.S.? It's absolutely uh, very, very frustrating for many people here. And what's interesting is that in the past several days, uh, the state media has been Um, really doubling down on zero COVID. Earlier this week, um, there was one um, article by the People's Daily, which is the Communist Party mouthpiece, which said that uh, zero COVID is based in science. It also said that zero COVID is sustainable. And then today, it warned citizens against slacking off, or what Chinese say, lying flat on zero COVID. Um, So what people have been doing in reaction to that, uh, given how sensitive it is, is just reposting that article over and over again, along with some angry emojis or frustrated emojis. And uh, some people have been 
kind of sarcastic, I think more of the, the daring ones, saying that, yes, it's true that the rest of the world is wrong and that China is the only one on the right path. Yeah, it's certainly a frustrating time for a lot of folks out there right now in China, I'm sure. Eunice Yoon with the latest in Beijing. Thank you very much. Still on deck for the show, Russia stepping up its air assault on Ukrainian cities as the White House continues to pledge its support to Kyiv. We have a live report from Washington when Worldwide Exchange returns after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Russia is launching another round of airstrikes across Ukraine as the death toll from the week's early attacks continues to rise in one of Moscow's most brazen attacks on the country in months. Now, President Biden finally weighing in on that growing threat from Moscow. NBC's Bree Jackson joins us now from Washington with the latest there. Good morning, Bree. Good morning, Dom. Well, Russia's sudden escalation of attacks is adding urgency to Ukraine's push for increased and stronger military support from Western allies. New images of explosion after explosion taking place across parts of Ukraine this week. The sounds of rockets and sirens blaring as Russia escalates its attacks. Ukrainian President Zelensky's urgent pleas for increased air defense systems growing stronger during an emergency meeting of the G7. Zelensky telling G7 leaders Russia must be completely isolated and punished. In an interview with CNN, President Biden called President Putin a rational actor while condemning the Russian leader. I think he just totally miscalculated. Stressing he does not think Putin will turn to nuclear weapons, despite Mr. Biden's warning last week of Armageddon and as Russian forces suffer devastating losses. He's acted brutally. He's acted brutally. He, I think he's committed war crimes. The Kremlin leader calls this latest round of violence retaliation for an attack on his Crimea bridge, a critical supply route for Russia. Ukrainians remaining defiant, though not claiming responsibility. With the violence ramping up, the U.S. is promising to deliver more aid to Ukraine. Today, Defense Secretary Austin is meeting with allies in Brussels to consider further action. We are going to continue to apply maximum pressure on Moscow to try and affect Putin's strategic calculus. President Biden also cautions world leaders against doing business with Russia. There will be, there will be consequences. Including Saudi Arabia after it partnered with Moscow to cut oil production. And Saudi Arabia and OPEC's decision to cut oil production is expected to cause gas prices here in the U.S. to rise, uh, heading into midterm elections. Dom. All right. Bree Jackson, live from Washington, D.C., with the latest there. Thank you very much. Let's get a check on more of this morning's headlines with NBC's Francis Rivera in New York with the latest. Good morning, Francis. Hi, Dom. Good morning to you. There is a new twist in the fight over classified documents seized from former President Trump's Florida home. The Justice Department is asking the Supreme Court to reject Mr. Trump's request that the court clear the way for the documents to be turned over to his lawyers and a special master for review. The Justice Department says Mr. Trump cannot make any personal claim to the papers and has offered no evidence he declassified them. The iconic Angela Lansbury died Tuesday, five days before her 97th birthday. She's best known for her starring role on Murder, She Wrote, but she also leaves behind a legendary legacy in Hollywood and on Broadway. Lansbury won five Tony Awards for various roles in musicals and plays. And in addition to the 12 seasons of Murder, She Wrote, she voiced Mrs. Potts in Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Star of stage and screen Angela Lansbury was 96 years old.
The MLB postseason got more intense with a full day of game ones from coast to coast in Los Angeles. Trey Turner put the Dodgers on the board with a first inning home run. L.A. survived a fifth-inning rally by the Padres and held on for the Game 1 win, 5-3. to three. And in the Bronx, Harrison Bader's first home run as a Yankee couldn't have come at a better time. Anthony Rizzo tacked on a two-run blast in the sixth to give New York some breathing room. The Yankees knock off the Guardians 4-1. And now to the biggest home run of the playoffs so far in Houston. In to try to close it on a Tuesday. Alvarez launches deep right field. Jordan Alvarez coming up huge with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. They walk off homer to the upper deck. The Astros down by four runs late. Come back to beat the Mariners 8-7. Now the Braves' quest to repeat as champions hit a roadblock as the Phillies rattled Max Freed early and whisted a late comeback by Atlanta to stun the defending champs 7-6. Sorry, dumb. Those are your headlines for this midweek. An unbelievable day of hardball for the postseason here. Thank you very much, Francis Rivera. When we come back on the show, Fairlead's Katie Stockton is here to lay out the bear case for stocks in the near and medium term. Plus, if first it was flamethrowers and then it's whistles, now Elon Musk is calling himself a perfume salesman. The story you have to hear coming up. And if you haven't already done so, please follow our podcast if you miss Worldwide Exchange. Check us out on Apple or Spotify or your podcast app of choice. We've got Worldwide Exchange in audio format. We'll be right back. Stocks looking to get back on track. Futures pointing right now to a higher open, as you can see, as investors brace for the minutes from the Federal Reserve and then key inflation data today as well. Mixed messaging from the Bank of England. The pound seeing some whipsaw price action over conflicting reports on whether the central bank will actually extend its bond buying program. The emergency one passed this week. And President Biden downplaying the risks of a recession here in the United States. His new comments ahead on this Wednesday, October 12th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today. Let's get right to how the markets are shaping up as we are just about halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour. Right now, futures are bid. You can see the Dow is implied higher by just about 222 points. We've seen an acceleration in just the last half hour to the upside. The S&P implied higher by 32 points and the Nasdaq by over 100 now, 122 at this stage. So trying to recover at least a little bit and snap this kind of real losing streak that we've seen in the markets. Now, in the bond market, yields a big focus ahead of key inflation data out today and tomorrow. Right now, the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield just a hair above 3.92 percent, so a slight tick lower there. And the two-year note yield, 4.28 percent. The 30-year long bond, though, still ticking higher, 3.91% the last trade there. We continue to watch what's happening in Europe. There was a new report the Bank of England is exploring possibly extending its emergency bond buying program beyond this Friday's deadline. The report coming just one day after the bank's governor said on the record they have no intention of extending the program. But in a statement in the last hour or so, the Bank of England confirmed it will end its emergency program on Friday. Yes, a lot of back and forth. So let's take a look at what's happening with U.K. assets. The benchmark 
10-year gilt or their version of Treasury yield, 4.49% the last trade there. You can see just over the course of the last few days, a little bit of volatility, but just between about four and a quarter percent and four and a half percent on the upside there. Also looking at the British pound, seeing some whipsaw action, although stabilizing a little bit right now. We saw a bid to it earlier on. We are still up about three quarters, now almost one full percent. That's a pretty big move higher in terms of currency. A dollar ten fifty seven is what it'll cost to buy a British pound right now. So we'll keep an eye on what's going on there. Now let's get to this morning's top stories and President Biden speaking out on a number of key issues at play for the markets right now. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Hi, Dom. Well, the president is downplaying growing talks around the risks of a possible recession. In an interview aired last night, Biden didn't fully discount the odds of an economic pullback from happening, but said they were very low, disputing growing chatter amongst Wall Street leaders, a downturn will happen. Every six months, they look down the next six months and see what's going to happen. It hadn't happened yet. It hadn't. There, there has there is no there's no guarantee that they're going to be. I don't think there will be a recession. If it is, it'll be a very slight recession. That is, we'll move down slightly. The president did acknowledge that while the U.S. has Real problems, he cited legislation passed under his administration, like the Inflation Reduction Act, with putting the U.S. in a better position than other economies, Dom. All right, Sylvana Hinao with those comments. Thank you very much. Back to the broader markets now. In a few rough days, weeks, and months for technology. The sector is facing multiple headwinds, the list growing by the day, putting pressure on an already beaten-up sector. Among the hurdles, new restrictions on Chinese chip manufacturers. The Nasdaq hitting lows not seen since June of 2020. J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon warning that tech valuations may never recover, never recover to pre-pandemic levels. And rising interest rates as hawkish Fed's Fed talk rolls on, in essence. Let's talk more about this with Gene Munster, managing partner at Loop Ventures. Uh, uh, Gene, this is, you can argue, but mathematically it is the most important sector to the overall economy and the markets for good reason, because so much of our productivity is driven on technology. Why is it right now that the outlook may not be as clear as it was, say, from a bounce back perspective, as it was post financial crisis or even post COVID? Dom, it's all about the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. It is uh, almost uh, elementary to mention that, but it's most important when it comes to tech stocks. And the reason is that this group is in a risk on asset is if you have the name tech besides your company profile, that means you are considered a more risky asset. And when you think about the the simple discounted cash flow related to this as interest rates go up, that means you need to get a higher return from those more risky assets. And that has played havoc on these companies. Just to put it into perspective, how much havoc has those rising interest rates had on tech? Is I went back and looked at the 10 high flyers in 2021. This is when interest rates were low. Those stocks, on average, are down more than 75% year to date. The Nasdaq's down 34% to date. And so if you think about the tech aspect of this, it has been hit more, uh, uh, more hard. I do uh, want to take the approach that uh, that is bad. What has happened in tech is bad. It's been because of the rising interest rates. 
But I think that there is uh, this me- uh, this mechanism where the market looks six, 12 months down the road. And Dom, I, I don't want to sprinkle good news on top of bad news, but I think it's important that we look forward is that these rates uh, hikes or the speed of rate hikes will likely diminish over the next six to 12 months. And I think when that happens, some of these more risky assets will come back into favor. So despite all the negativity related to rates, I'm still optimistic. I I mean, there's precedent for this, Gene. It's happened in the past where you see massive sell-offs for something for for big blue chip names-ish to the tune of 66 to 75 percent. And they end up becoming over the long term and with hindsight buying opportunities so where exactly then would the leadership be in that tech complex? Would it be the chip stocks? Would it be those mega cap kind of communication services or, or, or software or, or, or Apple, uh, for instance? What exactly then does kind of signal that that tech trade would come back? I think there are two companies to keep an eye on. Uh, we'll first start with one that has been less impacted that many look to Apple as a source of um, optimism for the market. Ironically, if Apple cracks, people will view that as the bottom. I don't think we're going to get that cracked on. And part of the reason is that their business continues to do well. Just to quickly frame that in, we look at the lead times for iPhone in eight countries. They're still running three to four weeks. That is higher than what they typically are at this point in the cycle. Usually they're down to two weeks. I think separately is that there's just an, an opportunity around Meta. This company has Uh, You know, they are trying to pioneer what is next in terms of a user platform. And uh, I just want to take one minute is that this trades at 11 times next year's earnings. And the question that has plagued Meta has been part about the impact from TikTok on the core business, but also apprehension related to the metaverse more broadly. It's understandable because this is a new computing platform. But I think embedded in some of that, uh, uh, excuse me, some of that pessimism around the metaverse more broadly is a question. And uh, if you think the answer to the question of, is there a platform beyond mobile? Is mobile the end of uh, innovation in terms of consumer interaction with tech? If the answer is mobile is the end, then there's no reason to own Meta as a company. But if you believe that there is a future operating system beyond mobile, then Meta is in a great place. And I put that as, when you think about kind of sifting through the bargain bin here related to big, large-cap tech that's going to be around for decades, Meta sticks out. Gene Munster has made the call. He likes Meta platforms. Gene, always to get your thoughts. Thank you very much. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Dom. All right. Coming up later on in the show, we're going to dive deeper into the metaverse. As Gene just pointed out, Mark Zuckerberg and company's big bet on new gear to attract users into this kind of virtual reality, this VR world, a precursor to the metaverse. But will it pay off as the tech giant continues to struggle? We'll try to answer some of those questions. But first, as we head to break, your top trending story, story. Elon Musk apparently getting in the fragrance business. Yes, the Tesla CEO taking to where else? Twitter to advertise what he's calling the finest fragrance on Earth. It's called burnt hair. Musk describing the fragrance as the essence of repugnant desire. Musk even updating his Twitter bio to quote-unquote perfume salesman. A product page on his boring company, Tunneling Company, listed the scent for $100 a piece, with Musk later claiming 10000 had been sold. Burnt hair. Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. 
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time for something random but interesting. And for that, RBI, we send it out to Brian Sullivan. Well, good morning, and your RBI is back. And something random and hopefully interesting to start your day, CNBC style. And today, because it's Wednesday and we probably need some hump day hope, let's find some optimism out there in the market. Why not? And there is a reason to be optimistic, believe it or not. Because as bad as things have been, history may be on your side. Take a look at this cool RBI from Deutsche Bank. The blue line shows the median return of the S&P 500 one year before and one year after midterm elections here in America. This includes all 19 midterm congressional elections going back to World War II. So they've got a lot of data. And here's what the team at Deutsche found. In every single midterm election year, the S&P has gone up in the following year. Every single time. 19 out of 19, with a six-month period after the vote particularly profitable, with an average rally of 13%. Okay, that's a lot of info, especially for this hour of the day. So here's the bottom line. Stocks tend to boom after a midterm congressional vote with a 100% success rate going back to 1945. Now, this is a different world. You've got Putin's war, out-of-control inflation, bond markets on the verge of melting down in certain countries. Nothing is certain And certainly nothing should ever be viewed as 100% chance. But if you needed a little pick-me-up possibility, there you go. History says there may be some better times ahead and maybe keep some cash handy. Random and hopefully interesting. All right. Thanks very much, Brian Sullivan, for that. As you heard from Gene Munster moments ago, he says if you believe mobile is not not the final chapter in human interaction with technology and something greater is on the horizon he's betting on meta platforms that's his stock pick and with yesterday's new headset unveil could we be in the early stages the early innings of that shift joining me now is kathy hackle co-founder and chief metaverse officer yes there's a chief metaverse officer a cmo at journey specializing in all things virtual and augmented reality, VR and AR. Uh, Kathy, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to hear Gene Munster's comments just about 10 minutes ago on our air here, but he is pretty bullish on what's happening with Meta and, and its, its future ambitions, especially given the stock move lower. So take us through what you saw in that big unveil yesterday. Are you excited more or less or just the same, given what we just saw with the VR headset? I'm kind of in the middle of it. You know, I I believe that what they announced yesterday was quite interesting. Um, It was meta in some ways catching up to the VR AR industry and focusing on work. You've already had companies like HTC Vive, you know, announce devices that are focused on the enterprise or even Magic Leap, which is not VR, obviously, uh, pivot their product into enterprise. So it was kind of them catching up. Uh, It made sense to me for them to announce this prosumer, you know, enterprise device that is, you know, has a pretty hefty, uh, you know, uh, pretty hefty uh, price line, but it is quite an interesting moment. Uh, I'm really excited about the competition they are bringing to the market uh, in the sense that now you have, for example, Meta betting on enterprise, bringing this consumer head, this prosumer headset, but then you also have ByteDance, right, uh, with the Pico acquisition and the headsets they're introducing. So it's this moment of not just, you know, a battle over, you know, the timeline, but it's going to be a battle over which VR headset you're eventually going to wear. So if, if this is the early stages, what exactly, if VR and AR 
the, the augmented VR, virtual reality mm-hmm. type situation is, is the early stages. What then is the next inning? What's the second or third inning? What's the next iteration or evolution for Metaverse? Yeah. So right now what you're seeing is this kind of, uh, you know, this uh, race to replace, let's say, the desktop with a VR headset. And during the keynote, they mentioned that several times uh, or replace the mobile phone with AR glasses. Right. I think a lot of people are thinking of some type of wearable AR glasses that come after, you know, VR and AR devices. Um, Eventually, you know, eventually it could be an all day on uh, device, potentially contact lenses. I mean, that's a little scary, obviously, a little further out. But the idea is that the metaverse will be all-encompassing an internet that is all around us, right? Um, But I do see that moment where Meta mentions virtual reality headsets replacing our desktops. Um, So you have Meta, you know, betting really, really hard on VR, uh, and then potentially Apple, depending on what they bring to market, betting really heavily on AR glasses. So it's a bit of an interesting competition that you're starting to see there. Kathy, uh, before we let you go, how much in your mind did the virus pandemic hasten the 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 next evolution of the metaverse i i say this because we talk about virtual desktops virtual workplaces we've seen these virtual workplaces not in the metaverse but in actual life with things like zoom and facetime and microsoft teams and slack and everything else is that then now the precedent for this idea that the metaverse can work because we've seen the virus pandemic and the response Yeah, I think it's a combination of the virus and the pandemic accelerating the adoption of the technology. But it's also the fact that you have Gen Z entering the workforce and Gen Alpha, which is still being born, uh, you know, who live in some of these virtual environments, maybe not VR, but in the gaming spaces. Right. And to those to them, those experiences are very real. Right. So it's a combination of a lot of things, generational changes, but also the pandemic accelerated everything. All right. Kathy Hackle, the chief metaverse officer at Journey. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. On deck for the show, Fairlead Strategies, Katie Stockton, on the key technical levels that she's watching in the markets and the areas where she's finding finding buying opportunities. You heard right, buying opportunities right now. And throughout the course of Hispanic Heritage Month, CNBC is celebrating teammates, contributors, business leaders, colleagues. As we head to break, here is Payne Capital Senior Wealth Advisor, Courtney Garcia. My grandfather immigrated to the U.S. speaking only Spanish in hopes of obtaining a better life for his family. Two generations on, I'm happy to report that he achieved those goals. What made that possible was a strong work ethic, knowing the value of a dollar, and savings, all things that were instilled upon me at a very young age. As I now look to instill those same values upon my own children, peers, and clients, I also want to stress the importance of investing and making sure that your money is working just as hard as you are to ultimately create generational wealth for your family for years to come. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Getting ready now for your trading day ahead on tap. The latest read on producer prices, business level inflation at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time, plus the 2 p.m. minutes from the Federal Reserve policy decision that's coming up later on. And speaking of the Fed, expect new comments from Neil Kashkari, Fed Governor Michelle Bowman, and newly minted Federal Reserve Vice Chair for Supervision, Michael Barr, later on today. And in Earnings Central, we get results from PepsiCo before the market opened this morning. So a lot to keep track of right now. And the markets are bid, at least for right now. With all of that in mind, let's get a check on U.S. stock futures right now and bring in Katie Stockton, Fairlead Strategies founder and managing partner. Uh, Katie, this has been a pretty decent losing streak that we've had. Is there any bottom in sight in your mind? 
Well, certainly not a major low. I mean, we just don't have those indications as of yet. We look at things like the monthly overbought, oversold measures. And while they're oversold, we're seeing some kind of retest. And that's really characteristic of a bear market cycle, which, as you know, can be prolonged. So we have no indications yet of a long-term low. But there are some indications still that we're getting into a shorter-term low. I think that we uh, these sort of counter-trend rallies are really very difficult to time. And, and that's because they're very fast and furious, very short-lived. And, and we saw that, of course, last week with a, a very explosive two-day up move. Um, but what we have here now for the S&P 500 Unfortunately, is a decisive breakdown below the summertime lows. Those weren't major support, but it does obviously show that the downtrend that's been intact year to date still very much has a hold on the market. If that's the case, let, let's say hypothetically, uh, I, I can't do this, but I can do it with futures if I'm a futures trader in e-minis or anything else. Let's say I wanted to put a limit order down below for the S&P 500 e-minis right now, where would I put it just to see if I could pick some levels to either take a position or build around a new one? Uh, are you talking about a short-term position? Sure. Let's talk, let's talk about a short-term <laughs> position. Let's see if there's a short-term bounce here. That you're we can forcing find. me into it, Dom. Uh, you know, what I would say is that for the S&P 500 cash, which is where we drive most of our levels except intraday levels, the support that's most important is roughly 3505. And that's based on a 50% retracement of the uptrend drawn back to the COVID corrective low. And that's an important support level, but it's just an interim support level in our work. We actually believe that the S&P 500 at some stage during this bear market cycle will reach 3,200, which was a targeted support level from an earlier breakdown. And therein, of course, lies the risk of any kind of counter trend positions. But I would say that sort of 35 area would be a place that would be a natural spot to see some kind of more sustained relief rally unfold. We certainly do have a widespread intermediate term oversold condition about in line with what we saw at the June low. And we do that by tallying up the, the oversold readings among the constituents of the S&P 500. And it is a very oversold extreme that we have here. But again, we'd rather use that kind of relief rally as a selling opportunity as opposed to put on a counter trend position. All right. So, so, Kate, so we focused a lot, of course, on what's happening with the broader markets in the S&P and certainly the 35 percent pullback in the Nasdaq. But, but there are other parts of the market right now that are in focus as well. I think about crude oil. I think about a lot of commodities that may signal something about the global economy, maybe even gold prices. Are, are commodities on your radar right now at all in terms of a possible opportunity for, for a bottom? Always. I mean, we look at commodities as they influence equities and certainly the energy sector this year has been very topical. Uh, for crude oil prices, we have seen a very impressive relief rally there. And what we're calling for is a shallow pullback, which is essentially underway, and then a resumed relief rally. We think crude oil may have entered a long-term trading range, just like gold prices have already been in. And yet these sort of intermediate term swings within that context can be quite sizable. So we are looking for some upside follow through in the coming weeks for crude oil. And that should continue to be a boon to the energy stocks, which exhibit positive long term momentum and relative strength. And they're really the only sector that has that characteristic at this time. For gold prices in particular, again, we've seen really the most significant oversold bounce since the intermediate term downtrend began a few months ago. 
ago. And we say that because we now have upturns in our weekly measures that suggest that it has a little staying power. So we welcome that relief rally in gold, which has, of course, outperformed the equity market as a bit of a safe haven in this type of environment. But beyond that, we can find uptrends in the ag. So the agricultural commodities, things like corn and wheat, that's a source of long-term uptrends. And as you know, Dom, there's not a lot of those in the marketplace globally right now. So we welcome any opportunity to take advantage of long-term uptrends. All right. So ag commodities, the soft ones, we'll keep an eye on those. I wonder, Katie, before we let you go, we just got a couple seconds left here. Is there a high conviction short in your mind right now? You know, we actually are recommending shorting Tesla. And I have to say that because we have a short-term breakdown. It's a significant loss of relative strength that we've seen. And of course, the momentum has deteriorated. And if you take a step back and look at the long-term picture of Tesla, you'll see what looks like a topping formation. So to us, that holds a lot of risk. Maybe not in the very, very near term, but beyond the very near term, we do think that we'll see some additional downside leadership from Tesla. Katie Stockton, always great to get your thoughts on those charts. We appreciate it. We'll see you soon. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. And by the way, futures right now showing some signs of strength. We're implied higher by just about 165 points right now. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.